Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. In this series that we're doing, just to kind of catch uh, some folks up, any first-time guests and things like that with us, uh, we felt led a few months ago to do a series that was kind of tied to um, an online organization entitled TrueLife.org. You can go to TrueLife.org and find all kinds of uh, Bible studies, video uh, studies on uh, really important topics. And through this series and through us offering these invite cards that we have that you can use, we're trying to point people toward that website. And I hope that they uh, find help for themselves there. And just maybe if they find help for themselves there, they'll consider paying us a, a visit also. Uh, we start out with very basic topics, such as, is there such a thing as truth? Because you need to understand there is absolute truth, or there's no reason to go beyond that point, uh, because you won't believe anything else uh, that the Bible might present you unless you understand there's absolute truth. We looked at, uh, is there a God? Uh, not just from the biblical standpoint, but we looked at some scientific evidence and found out the more and more discoveries they are making in science today, that the more it tends to point toward a creator instead of away uh, from a creator because of the precise tolerances and the, and the universe and the, and the atom and DNA and all kinds of things uh, like that. And then we talked about this, is Jesus God? Because that's a very important question also, if you're going to have uh, Jesus to be your Savior. Uh, That Sunday, we talked about there's really only uh, four conclusions you can come to. You can come to the conclusion that Jesus was a liar. In other words, he was going around claiming to be God, and he wasn't. You can come to the conclusion that Jesus uh, was a lunatic. He thought he was God, but he really wasn't. You can come to the conclusion that maybe he was a legend uh, and that his followers expanded everything and made these stories larger uh, than life, larger than what they really are. Or you can actually come to the conclusion that he's who he said he was, and that's that he's the Lord, which is the uh, conclusion I suggest the evidence points to. Last week we talked about this, did Jesus fulfill prophecy? We were looking at criteria as to whether or not Jesus is who he claimed to be. It's relatively easy to say, well, you know, I'm God or I fulfill prophecy or I'm the Messiah. Anyone can do that. But then actually fulfilling the criteria of being the Messiah, of being God in the flesh, that's a little bit more difficult. We saw last week that if you just take eight of the prophecies, only eight, and there were close to 400 of them, but if you took just eight of the prophecies, the probability of any one person fulfilling all those say the prophecies is, is astronomical to, that anyone would do that except for the one that it, it is really about, and that's Jesus. Today we're going to talk about this, and while we've kind of rubbed shoulders with this topic on the resurrection, when we talked about is Jesus God, because the resurrection gave evidence that he was, and when we talked about prophecy, because the resurrection is also part of prophecy, I want us to talk about it in a little bit more detail today. Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? You see, it's an important question. Paul actually said this in 1 Corinthians. He said, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. So kind of layman's explanation of that today or, or interpretation of, of that would be this. If Christ really didn't arise from the dead, I'm wasting my time preaching. 
I am wasting my breath. Your faith is useless. It doesn't matter anything whatsoever. Jesus really didn't take his life back up. As a matter of fact, if Jesus really didn't do what he said, if he really didn't take his life back up from the grave, we might as well shut the doors of this church and every church and give up and never, ever come back again. If he really didn't rise from the dead. So it's a very important issue whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. One thing that makes it extremely important is this. Jesus himself said he was going to do it. Mark chapter 9, he said, For the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. So Jesus was going around saying, I'm going to rise from the dead. And then if he did not do it, then that would really give us pause to believe anything else that he said. In other words, if Jesus didn't carry this out, we might as well just believe that Jesus is a liar. We might as well just believe that he's a lunatic or that he's a legend instead of believing he's the Lord if he did not rise from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it would be foolish for us to believe some other things that Jesus said, such as in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, or John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or John 10, where he says, I give unto them eternal life, and they will never perish. Why believe all that unless he did what he said he was going to do? And this rise from the dead. And since he did do what he said he was going to do, that gives us the reason to believe. That gives us confidence in our faith when we consider that Jesus actually kept those promises and he proved who he is by rising from the dead. What I want us to look at is some logical evidence. It's not scientific evidence, I will give you that, because there's not scientific evidence for us to go grab, like when we talked about, is there a creator, is there a God? But it's logical evidence, and I think if you will listen to the logical evidence that's going to be presented today, you should come away with a conclusion that Jesus, in fact, did rise from the dead. Some of it we kind of talked a little bit about before, some of it we've, we've not. So a couple of things, if you were here the last couple of weeks, you might think, well, that sounds a little bit like review. That used to worry me a lot. You know, if I was in a sermon and in a series and I repeated something I'd already said, until I started figuring this out, we don't get it all the first time, you know. Some of the wives are looking around saying, I, I know that for sure. My husband never gets it all the first time when I, when I tell him. Years ago, when I would, you know, go more often to Bible conferences and things, one of the favorite preachers I ever had to listen to was Thad Dowdle. And uh, Thad Dowdle would, would, would really put a lot into it. He's, he's, he's the one you can blame when I get on a Sunday. I'm doing tons of word studies and stuff like that because he's the one that kind of modeled that for me. And listening to Thad Dowdle live and I'd get a tape and listen to it, I would be listening to the tape and i think to myself, I, I don't remember him saying that when I heard it. In other words, there's too much there to grab. So it's okay sometimes to repeat some things to where we actually understand it. And the first point today is going to be a little bit like that. What, what's some logical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead? I think the first one would be this. It would be the measures that were taken to keep him in the tomb. As we will read in these verses and see what took place there, how many times do you hear of people taking these types of extreme measures to be sure a dead man stays dead? And that's, that's exactly what they did. So the next day, that is after the day of the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that imposter said. Now, they're calling Jesus an imposter. They didn't believe he was who he said he was. They're saying this is what he said. They said that he was going to rise from the dead. 
We remember what this imposter said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb. In other words, therefore, because Jesus had claimed he would do that, let's be sure that someone doesn't play a trick on us. Order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Now, let me stop a minute before I finish reading that. It blows my mind that this religious crowd is worried about fraud since they had just done everything they could to fraudulently put a man to death. You understand that? One that was perfect and sinless, and yet they came up with every excuse under the sun trying to find a cause against Jesus to to crucify him. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and by setting a guard. So this religious crowd, the high priests, they were worried that something would happen to make it look like that Jesus did what he said he would do, which is take his life back up. They go to Pilate. They said, help us out here. Let's be sure he stays in the grave. So he said, go make it secure as you can. Here's a guard of soldiers. By the way, that guard of soldiers, since they were appointed by Pilate, would not just be any old group of soldiers. I told you this a couple of weeks ago. They would be like the elite of the elite in the Roman centurion guard that would have been posted there. Now, wait for you to get that in your mind, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, to help you understand the implications here. It would be like in modern-day terms if we were to say the Navy SEALs are there, okay? The Navy SEALs are posted. Now, ask yourself this question. If the Navy SEALs were posted guarding a place, are you going to go and try and break into it and get past them? I doubt very many of us would do that, right? Certainly not a ragtag bunch of people like the ones that were following Jesus. Common men who were fishermen and things like that. They were not trained soldiers. They're not going to go try and break through this interior guard because they understood trying to do so, it would cost them their lives. So because you had these elite soldiers there, it's very unlikely anyone stole his body. Also because there was a seal placed on the tomb. And when it said they sealed the tomb, that didn't mean they just rolled a stone there. It meant they rolled the stone there, but then they put a Roman seal and insignia representing the power and the authority of the Roman government. And if anyone were to break that seal, that also would cause them to be executed if they were caught breaking the seal. My point is simply this. They went through extreme measures to be sure that Jesus stayed in the tomb, but it didn't work. Amen? Because he took his life back up. But the fact that these extreme measures were taken ought to give us some some confidence that Jesus really rose from the dead. Now, I dealt with a couple of excuses that people also give a couple of weeks ago, and, and that is they will say, well, the authorities hid his body. Why would they want to hide his body? They wanted him to be dead. You realize that? If they had hit his body and then the evidence or the the rumors started going around that Jesus had risen from the dead, you know what they would do? They would hold a party, a parade, and they would parade his body through the streets to prove he was still dead. They didn't do that. And then this thing called the swoon theory that liberal theologians came up with years ago, and that is Jesus didn't really die. He just kind of fell asleep on the cross. They put him in the grave, and the coolness of the grave kind of stirred him, woke him back up, and, uh, and he got out. Well, you're still having to deal with the Roman guard being there, uh, you know, the tomb being sealed, and really crazy theories like that is just excuses people come up with when they don't want to believe. I'm, I'm just being honest with you. But the measures taken... To keep Jesus in the tomb ought to logically communicate to us that he really took his life back up. Not just the measures taken, but the witnesses. 
the, the multiple witnesses and their testimonies that we can see in the scriptures that Jesus rose from the dead are really significant. You, you understand in a court of law, uh, most of you know that I was in law enforcement for not quite 10 years almost, and uh, I would see a lot of cases, you know, tried out in a court of law, and you'd always want to make the case as strong as you could when you're doing an investigation if you had multiple witnesses. If you had especially, you know, two witnesses to cooperate, they're telling the exact same story. If you have multiple witnesses on the stand telling the exact same story of what they saw, that's very strong in a court of law and causes the judge or the jury to have to make a decision. I had a, a, a case one time where I, I stopped the fellow from running a red light and uh, uh, Kind of, we, we knew some other things were going on also, but he did run the red light, so that got the blue light turned on. And uh, as soon as I got up to the window, there's this certain aroma I could smell coming through the window when he rolled the window down. And that got me shining my flashlight around just a little bit more, looking around, and, and, and lo and behold, there is a God because he let me see marijuana seeds in the car. In other words, that gave me the probable cause to search the vehicle. See, all of our officers back here understand what I'm talking about. You know. I searched the vehicle, and I found a bag of pot. And I thought, yes, there is a guy. I finally caught this guy, and I took him to jail. Weeks later, we're trying the case out. And he has a friend show up who gets on the stand, swears in, as a witness gets on the stand, and his friend swears this. Yes, that was his car, but the bag of marijuana belonged to me. And he thought, I, I have got my friend off. And he did, because the judge said, case dismissed. And then the judge looked at the bailiff and said, arrest that man on his own sworn testimony for the possession of marijuana that it was his. See, a testimony matters sometimes. What you say matters. In a court of law, it matters when you have multiple witnesses saying the same thing. And that's what we have concerning the resurrection. There are several witnesses. So imagine for a moment we're in a court of law, and we're going to bring some witnesses forward and let them tell us what they knew about the resurrection of Christ. And the first set of witnesses may be surprising to you because they have nothing to do with disciples. They have no reason to give this testimony. They have no ulterior motive. They're not trying to push the ministry of Christ or the truth of the resurrection. And the first witnesses were the Roman guards themselves. Because we're told in Matthew 28, while they were going, talking about the disciples, uh, to go tell the disciples Jesus was risen from the dead, behold, some of the guards, some of the soldiers, went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. So here you've got the very soldiers who guard in the tomb going and telling the chief priests, hey, this is what happened out there at the tomb. And when they assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Problem with that is they could have been killed themselves, executed for falling asleep while they're on duty. So they said, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. We will tell him that didn't really happen. We just paid you to say that's what happened. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So the first witnesses on the stands actually the Roman guard that were there, and they give evidence and testimony of what happened at the tomb. The second witnesses we bring forth are the women involved. 
And that might not seem strange to you. It may, though, in a moment after we read about the women being there, and I'll explain to you why this logically points to the truth of the resurrection. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, and while it was still dark, and saw that the tomb had been taken away, or the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John's way of talking about himself, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where to lay him, where they've laid him. Another instance of that is found in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there's a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance, talking about the angel, was like lightning and his clothes was white as snow. Uh, And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for I know that you see Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he's risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them as they were running along the way and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So in two instances there, we have stories of, of women coming to the tomb. Now the significance of that is this. In that day and time, in that culture, women were very, very marginalized. They weren't considered very significant or very important. They could give a testimony in a court of law, but they would not be your choice witnesses to go and bring into a court of law because of the way culture viewed them. My point is this. If the resurrection of Christ were false, if the disciples were making it all up, If they're just running a facade here, a farce, and they're making up a story that was not really true, in that day and time, the last persons they would have chosen to be the first at the tomb to give witness would have been women because they would have understood up front, based on the culture of that day, the women's testimonies would not carry the weight that the testimony of other people such as the men would have. So you see, the fact that they chose to use women shows that they're not trying to trick people. They're not trying to write something that's false. Just because the women in that day were very marginalized, they're writing a true story. And that's why they chose to go ahead and tell the truth, that women were the first ones there at the tomb. We've brought to the stand to give testimony the Roman guard. We've brought to the stand to give testimony the resurrection the women who would have been unlikely witnesses in that day and time. But we also have the disciples because Jesus appeared to the disciples in multiple ways. In the last few messages, I recognize I've been reading a lot of Scripture to y'all. And and, and sometimes I worry about that because it's just like I'm sitting reading the Bible. But at the same time, you know what I feel like is true? The Bible can speak for itself. Amen. There's nothing I can say being up here to validate what the Scripture says more than just letting it speak to itself. So what I want to do is read some verses to you, several verses in a row here that show how Jesus appeared to the disciples. John 20, verse 3 through 10, 
You've got the story of Peter and, and John, the disciple that Jesus loved, running to the tomb after they heard the news. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Some people think, well, maybe Peter was older. Maybe Peter wasn't in as good a shape as John was. I've always kindly bet on this. I bet if you've denied Jesus three times, you're not in that much of a hurry to get to the tomb. Amen? Man, that's where Peter was. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen clothes lying there. Now, let me stop for a moment. Because the way that's phrased, especially when you look in the original language, it gives the idea of the, the wrappings that were placed around the body of Jesus, not having been unwrapped, they were just lying there as though miraculously Jesus had just came out of them. No one had came in and unwrapped him. They were just lying there the same way that he was wrapped. And they also saw the napkin folded up in a place by itself. In other words, when Jesus took his life back up, that napkin that was over his face, he took the time to fold it in a neat fashion and he laid it aside over there. And that's what Peter sees when he goes in. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, talking about John himself, also went in and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Here's another instance of Jesus appearing to the disciples. Afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at the table. He comes in and he rebuked them as they were there at the table because of their own belief and their hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And then he said to them, and he gives them Mark's version of the Great Commission, go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Let's keep reading. Luke chapter 24. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. Now stop for a moment. I'll pick back up again. It's interesting to me several times when Jesus appears on the other side of the crucifixion and the resurrection that the first message that he gives to the people that he appears to is this, peace to you. And then he goes on to show them his wounds. You see, they had reason to have peace in their hearts. They had had a lot of turmoil and concern in their hearts because the one they thought the Messiah, the one that they had followed for three years in public ministry, they had seen cruelly beaten and crucified. But now he's alive. And he's showing them evidence through the wounds in his hand and in his feet and his side. So he's speaking words of peace to them, and he's showing them reasons why they ought to have peace. And I would submit to you the same thing ought to be true for you and I. Because Jesus took his life back up, you and I can have peace in our hearts today. He can speak peace to us because of what he did for us. But they were startled and frightened as though they thought they saw a spirit, in other words, a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? He says, see my hands and my feet that it is I. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So Jesus appeared to them and he said, I, I know you're still doubting. So come over here. I want you to do something. Come feel me. Not a spirit. It's not a ghost. Come, come feel me. You can see that I have flesh. You can see that I have bones. Come touch me and feel me and see th that I'm real. 
And when he had said that, he showed them his hands and his feet, evidence that he was who he claimed to be. There wasn't a lot of people walking around with pierced hands and pierced feet and a pierced side, except for Jesus. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Not only did Jesus show them he had a physical body, Jesus asked them if they had something to eat. So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. Once again, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones and doesn't sit down to a meal with you. Jesus ate the fish in front of them, bearing evidence of his resurrected body. John chapter 20, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, they were afraid that what had happened to Jesus would happen to them. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, what's that message again? What? Peace to you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Let's keep reading. Later on in that same chapter, eight days later, His disciples were inside again, and Thomas, the one that was not there the first time, and the one that was doubting, said, I won't believe unless I actually see him, unless I touch him, unless I see the wounds and touch the wounds. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and once again, he has that message. What is the message again? Peace. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side and do not disbelieve. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. In other words, he's convinced that that is exactly Jesus standing there now that he sees him. Let's keep reading. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Not only did Jesus eat with the disciples, the Bible tells us he actually cooked a meal for them. I've never had a ghost show up and cook a meal for me. Have you had one? A spirit? He's there and he's come to them. They've decided they're going to go fishing. And they recognize as him, Peter's hopped out of the water, swam to shore. Jesus is going to be restoring Peter where he denied him three times. He's going to let him confess his love to him three times. But in the process of that, he fixes breakfast for them And none of the disciples dare ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And also we have this evidence of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's talking about Jesus, that he, Jesus, was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We talked about that already. The Bible said it was going to happen. And that he appeared to Cephas. That's another way to talk about Peter. He appeared to Cephas, to Peter, and to the twelve. Then I want you to notice this. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. That's a pretty public display, isn't it? For Jesus revealing himself and people seeing him on the other side of being crucified, on the other side of being put in the grave. And I will use this verse in a few moments a different way, but it says, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared also to me, because Paul had been Saul persecuting the church, taking Christians to their death. And he met Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord, that day on the road to Damascus. And it radically changed his life because he saw the risen Jesus Christ. 
We're talking about logical evidence that would lead us to the conclusion that Jesus actually took his life back up. We've got the evidence of the measures they took to try and keep him in the tomb. And now we're looking at these multiple witnesses that give evidence of the fact that he took his life back up. And, and here, not just to the disciples that followed him intimately and closely, but to 500 at one time and to Paul himself. When we look at the way the disciples were before the resurrection and the way the disciples act and behave after the resurrection, there's a radical change that takes place. Because the disciples were locked in for fear of the Jews. You remember me reading that a moment ago? Afraid someone's going to do something to them, crucify them, bury them. But now a radical change takes place. Instead of hiding, now they're going out in public telling people. Instead of being afraid what might happen to them, Peter, that denied Jesus three times out of fear when he saw what was taking place to Jesus that night of his betrayal. That same Peter now will stand up on the day of Pentecost and preach a bold message right in the face of the same religious leaders that crucified Jesus. What changes a man from being the one that denied him three times out of fear to being the man that stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches that type of bold sermon? I would submit to you, here's what changed Peter. He saw the resurrected Lord. And in with that, he understood the one that he was following is authentic. The one that he was following is real. He saw that he'd been nailed to a cross. He knew that he'd been placed in a tomb. But he also knew that he took his life back up. And I think Peter's mindset might have been this. I saw what you did to Jesus. He's still alive. I don't care what you might do to me now because I believe I will still be alive because I'm following him. And it radically changed Peter and the other disciples. Because as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, individually, apart from each other, not in a group as though they're giving moral support to each other, but individually and apart from each other, they seal what they believe and what they're saying about the gospel of Christ, about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead in their own blood. Many of them tortured to death. Many of them died horrible deaths over a period of years. And I will submit to you this also. If you know what you're telling is a lie, you're not going to die for it. Amen? But they knew what they were telling was the truth, and they couldn't help but tell the truth, and they were willing to seal it in their own blood as they died for what they knew was true. Another evidence to bring forward is the 40 days. What witnesses do we have of the resurrection of Jesus? The Roman guard, the women that in that day and time would not be thought of as the primo witnesses to have on the stand, the disciples, but also 40 days happen. See, Jesus didn't rise from the dead and sneak off to heaven. (laughs) He hung around for 40 days. Acts chapter 1, verse 3, to them he presented himself alive after his suffering 
by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 10, they put him to death behind him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Acts chapter 13, and though they found him uh, found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses of or to the people. For 40 days he hung around. What's well, some logical evidence that ought to lead us to believe in the resurrection of Christ? First of all, the measures they took to keep him in the grave that didn't work. Second, the multiple witnesses that all corroborate the story that Jesus has risen from the dead. In a court of law, a person would be found guilty or innocent pretty quick if you got that many eyewitness accounts of what actually took place. The third logical evidence that ought to cause us to believe in the resurrection involves the time frame and the location of the resurrection. The time frame and the location of, of the resurrection. Talk about the time frame to start with. I told you we'd come back to this verse and use it in a little bit different way. Paul was writing that he was buried, that he was raised again in the course of the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Do you see that? In other words, at the time Paul is writing this, he is saying people that saw the resurrected Lord are still walking around alive. It was like current events. In other words, if you had questions about it, there were 500, some of them had died, but at least 500 people had seen him publicly. He said some had already died, but some were still alive. That means that they were eyewitnesses still alive that someone could go and talk to. And if Paul is writing a lie, those eyewitnesses, when they heard about it, could have said, no, wait a minute, Paul, that's a lie. No, we didn't ever see him alive. No one ever saw him alive. The time frame being that soon you see, people accept truth all the time in, in its historical fact from hundreds of years, thousands of years in the past, and yet they believe it. Here, it was a situation where there were people still walking around alive that had seen Jesus alive on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the, being put in the tomb. And that's making an argument for the fact that, that he's really still alive. Not just the time frame, but the location. The location of the tomb, the location of his burial. Burial. John 19, verse 38 through 41 says this. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who, by the way, was part of the Sanhedrin, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who was part of that religious crowd, Pharisee, Sanhedrin, and uh, who earlier went to Jesus by night because he was afraid of all the other ones, his peer pressure that he was involved with, who came to Jesus by night. Nicodemus comes bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in a garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been Lay. In other words, the location of the burial of Jesus was really close by. 
You see, if, if all this was made up stuff, the way some people want to say, they'll say, oh, this is just fairy tales that men wrote together and they all wrote it at the same time. It didn't take place over hundreds of years. There's a problem with that, though. Historically, you can prove the Septuagint and other things were written hundreds of years before. <laughs> but they'll say, oh, it, all it was just made to sound. They all wrote it to make it look like prophecies were filled and everything else. Now, you think about that. If that were true... Would it be logical that the disciples of Jesus, if they're wanting to hold on to a facade, if they're wanting to write out a legend that no one can disprove, and that's all it is, they're writing a legend, would they write down that Jesus was buried that close by where people could go investigate and look in the tomb, or would they write down that he was buried in Timbuktu somewhere? He was buried in Rome. He was buried way out in the desert somewhere. No one can really find where he was buried. You see, if, if they were making up a lie and they didn't want anybody to disprove the lie, why not make it very, very hard to investigate the evidence of the resurrection? Instead, what they recorded was exactly what took place. Right close to where he was crucified, there was a garden. Right there in that garden, there was a tomb. And anyone that lived in Jerusalem in just a matter of minutes to an hour or so could have walked across the city of Jerusalem and they could have gone and visited the tomb and they could have looked for themselves. To me, that proves that they're right in the truth. They weren't making up a fairy tale because if they didn't want someone to disprove it, they would have made up a better lie than that. Amen? But instead, they simply write the truth that that is where he was buried. And they even include the name of two religious leaders of the day that groups that they were attached to hated Jesus. <laughs> and yet he mentioned Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And if that were not the case, if that not were true, it was all fabricated farce. Why give those kind of details that people could disprove? You want to know why? Because it was real. Amen. Because it was real. The logical evidence that Jesus actually took his life back up, that he rose, rose himself from the, from the dead. That he was risen from the dead. They tried to keep him in, armed guard and everything else. It didn't work. Multiple witnesses testified to seeing him risen on the other side of the cross and the other side of the grave. In the very location and time frame of when he died and where he was buried, all give evidence that the story about his resurrection is true. But why is it important? Why is it important? I'm going to close by pointing out to you why the resurrection of Jesus is important, and then John will be out here and we'll do this thing you call an invitation at church. Why is the resurrection so important? I'm going to give you about seven quick things. One, the resurrection proves that Jesus is who he claimed to be. In other words, if he was still dead, you wouldn't have any reason to believe he's God. Number two, if Jesus remained dead, it would be foolish to believe his claims. I talked about that in the message. If he's still dead, if he's still in the grave, why well, believe that you can have everlasting life by trusting in him? Number three, the resurrection of Jesus gives us reason to believe the Bible is God's word because the Bible had prophesied that it would happen and it takes place exactly as it was said. Number four, the resurrection provides complete validity to Christianity, which no other, quote, religion. You understand why I say that? Whenever I talk about Christianity, I don't view Christianity as a religion. Do you understand that? Religion is mankind trying to reach up to God. Christianity is God reaching down to man through Christ. There's a great difference. 
But any other, quote, religion in the world, guess what? You can go visit the tomb of their leader. You can't, Jesus, you can't find him still buried in the grave. It gives validity to Christianity. Number five, the resurrection of Jesus means that we're accountable to him. In other words, he's still alive, he's still around, and you're going to stand before him one day. And I suggest you prepare to stand before him by trusting him and having your sins forgiven before it's too late. Number six, Jesus, by rising from the dead, gives us genuine hope for forgiveness, for salvation, and eternal life. Man, if he was still in the grave, why would I have any hope that I could go to heaven? Why would I have any hope that my sins could be forgiven? Why would I have any hope of eternal life? But because Jesus satisfied all the just and holy requirements of God the Father, he died in our place. He took the punishment for our sin. He took his life back up to prove he had won the victory. All those things give me reason to believe in him. And the seventh one is this. The resurrection tells us that what happened for Jesus one day will happen for us if we're believers. Jesus, on the other side of death, lives forever. (laughs) And if you know Christ as your personal Savior, on the other side of death, that that's what happens to you. The way things are going in our world and our culture, Jesus may come back and you may not ever die. You might just be translated and be called up to be with him. That's what the Bible calls the rapture. That could very easily happen. But you may die, and I may die. We will die if Jesus doesn't come back. The fact that the one that I believe in, that I follow, Jesus Christ took his life back up, that gives me hope beyond death, hope beyond the grave, that one day I too will be in the presence of God for all eternity. That's the important reasons why we need to believe in the resurrection. So do you, have you, trusted in Christ? Let's pray. Father, we pray right now for anyone that may be in this place this morning that's never, ever trusted in Jesus as Savior. It may be that they... We're standing a distance from faith, from believing the gospel, because they just couldn't believe anything like a a dead man could actually take his life back up. Father, I pray today you gave them logical evidence as to why the resurrection is true. And if there's anyone here that's been standing a distance from faith, from believing in Jesus, Father, I pray you give them the faith they need right now to believe. I pray you help them to admit to you that they're sinners, that they can't save themselves, they can't fix themselves. Give them the faith they need to trust in Jesus and Him alone. Lord, for those of us that have done that, give us a sense of urgency for friends and family members around us that may not know Christ. Help us to take these invite cards and invite people to come. Father, help us to have an urgency as we pray for lost family members and lost friends. Father, we pray you equip us through this series to where we have confidence in sharing our faith with others. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online 
at day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life.